0: Nice to see you. My name's Darren and uh, I'm one of the shepherds on staff. Excited to open up Ecclesiastes with you. I want to uh, add my welcome and my greeting to the one Mitch already gave you, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. So any given Sunday, we've got guests that come in and I just always want you to feel at home and anything I can do to help you sort of change out of the category of a guest, which I'm happy you are, to the category of family. If I can help with that, I would love to. We, we just love being family around here and if I can be of assistance, let me know. A uh, couple things before we dive into our text for today out of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the first one is we've got two Sundays, this one and one more, left in our fiscal year. And for some of you, you, couldn't care less about our fiscal year. But for some of you who've been regular members of our church for a long time, you pay attention to our annual budget, our expenditures, all those kinds of things. Uh, the great news is we're, we're in great shape. But if you are paying attention, I should say that it would be helpful if God were to move in you to give a little bit more in the next couple of weeks just to to keep us in a really good spot as we finish up our fiscal year, that would be a blessing. Obviously, what we'll do next year will be based on what giving looks like this year, and so uh, all of that stuff sort of plays into us being good stewards for the future. So I just want to put that in front of your mind that we got two, uh, two weeks left, including this one in our fiscal year, just so you know that's happening, and I uh, encourage you to pray about how God might have you participate in that if you're a regular part of our church. Uh, I wanted to say I heard from a couple of you this week that you did not like last week the way that I pronounced the word cohelet, right? So remember, if you're with us in our study, we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes and the way Ecclesiastes is framed is that you have uh, like a, a narrator voice in the first part of the first chapter and then in the last part of the last chapter. But in the middle, you have this first person voice of someone. ESV translates it, uh, the word Kohelet, they, trans, they translate it as The preacher, some people translate it the teacher. We talked last week, some people call him the critic or the quester or whatever. There's a lot of different translations on that because nobody's exactly sure what that word means. It's not used anywhere else. Its root word means someone who gathers an assembly of people. So that's why it's translated preacher. All of that to say though, there are some of you in here who are ancient Hebrew aficionados and it made you crazy last week that I emphasized the wrong syllable. So I just want to say, I'm really sorry that I said Kohelet or Kohelet or Kohelet and I just hit it the wrong way. I am not a scholar of ancient Hebrew and I will probably pronounce it wrong again and I pray that you will give me grace and not actually miss the point in the text because you're frustrated about my poor translation. I'm just owning it. What I'm going to try to do today is just say the letter Q and you'll know that in my mind I'm pronouncing it wrong and in your mind you pronounce it right and everybody will be happy. So there's that. Um, I also wanted to reiterate something from last week, and you guys have heard me say this before if you've been around for a long time. But with a book like Ecclesiastes, and I mentioned it, but there are lots of different opinions of certain things in the text. So, difference of opinion on when, for instance, it was written. Uh, I mentioned last week that I I believe that the book was written in a post exilic time period, and there are reasons for that. But I just want to say again that there are people who believe this book was written by Solomon in the day and age in which Solomon lived, and those aren't bad people. love those people and they may be right, right? So there are all kinds of things that we can disagree on and it doesn't wreck our ability to love each other and to think wisely together. Um, When I talk about authorship or I talk about the dating on a book like this, scholars are kind of all over the board and, and you are welcome. I had emails from a couple of people who were like, Hey, I don't, I think this book was written by Solomon. And my answer to that is great. I don't, but my opinion could be wrong. And that is the kind of posture we want to have with one another about non-essential things. Does that make sense? So we can disagree. And in fact, if you want to have a longer conversation with me about why I believe it was written, when it was written, or why I believe it was written by somebody other than Solomon, I'm happy to have that convo with you uh, over a cup of coffee. We can do it as friends and neighbors and whatever. I don't want to do it in here because there's actual stuff we want to get to that's more important than that. Does that make sense? So know that... um, I've said it before, but sometimes we feel like when people disagree with us on non-essential things, that that means they don't love the Bible or they're bad people or whatever. No, no, no. There are people who love Jesus and have a high view of scripture who disagree on some of these things. And that's perfectly appropriate. Okay. So there's that. Now let's talk about uh, the second half of chapter one, where we pick up today and then we'll look at all of chapter two. Thanks for that lengthy reading, by the way. Uh, in the beginning of chapter one, we heard the narrator or who I believe to be the author kind of giving a summary statement of everything else that Q is going to say during the book. Now we get to verse 12 and we're hearing Q's voice in the first person. And he actually gives us a summary in these verses that follow at the end of chapter one. So he's summarizing for us all of his investigation, all of the research that he did and the conclusions that he came to. Then when we get to chapter two and through the rest of the book until the end of chapter 12 or the middle of chapter 12, what we're gonna hear is more sort of explanation of all the things that he investigated, all of the journeys he went on and what he discovered in that process, right? So here we have this summary in the middle of chapter one that goes from verse 12 on and he basically gives us two sort of summary statements or summary proverbs that kind of wrap up his overarching thinking. So let's read this together and we'll look at these as we go. He says in verse 12, I, the preacher, that's the word Kohelet, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. These two summary statements are really interesting. Now this is framed in the... The, the, uh, like a very sort of um, a, a time period friendly thing that kings did all the time. There are all kinds of ancient records of ancient kings declaring all that they had done and all that they had acquired and all the places they had gone and all the things that they had done. This falls into that same rhythm and pattern. If you were reading this when it was origi- originally written, you would go, oh, this is a king bragging about all the things he knows and all the things he's done and all of his great claims. There are lots of kingly records like that. So he starts and says, me, the king, I did all this stuff. The difference between this kingly record and every other kingly record is that his kingly record here does not end in his own glory. In fact, in essence, what he says is, I had all this stuff and I did all this stuff and I learned all this stuff and I gotta tell you, at the end of it all, Meaningless. We talked last week about the word "hevel" that occurs in this book again and again. It can be alternately translated breath or vapor. It can be translated uh, futility or meaninglessness. I said last week I like the translation absurdity because what Q is essentially saying is I've seen all this stuff and I got to tell you it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't add up. It, It is it is futility to try and wrap your brain around what is happening in the world right under the sun. So here, he gives us this kingly record, but instead of bragging about all the things he's learned and all the things he knows, he pulls the rug out from underneath of that and he says, I learned all this stuff and I did all these things and I found it ultimately to be empty, not just his own pursuit, but the entirety of creation he finds to be empty and meaningless, right? I I, uh, was dating before dating apps were a thing, but my understanding of dating apps from movies and television is that when you go onto a dating app, uh the idea there is to sort of make yourself seem as big and as lovable as possible, right? You're trying to make yourself seem cool. And so you talk about your accomplishments and how good you would be to take on a date or whatever else. You would never, I, I think, on a dating app, sort of list all of your qualities and then be like, but you probably wouldn't want to have dinner with me because my conversation gets dull after about 10 minutes, right? You wouldn't get any dates if you did that, right? It is peculiar for the king in this narrative to be declaring all of his stuff and then to be saying, but it didn't matter, right? I did all this stuff and I had all this stuff, but it's Hevel. That would make the original reader stand up. It would make their ears perk up a little bit to go, this doesn't feel like a kingly record we're used to. This feels like something different. It is something different, right? Now his two summary statements go like this. Look with me first in verse 15. They're like little poems. He says what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. The first one of his summary statements here in his summary of everything else he's going to tell us is this. He says I've seen it all and I've done it all. I've looked at it all and I got to tell you God has made things in a way that seem busted and there's nothing any of us can do about it, right? When he says things are crooked and that they can't be counted, he's essentially pointing his finger at God and saying everything feels bonkers to me. Life is bananas. And you guys, this is the way God made it. This isn't an accident. It's not something that's incomprehensible. God made it in a way that is crooked and I can't do anything about it, right? Now, one of the things I would want you to know in this is that Kohelet, Kohelet, Kohelet uh, Q is a, uh, he's a man of faith right? You may be tempted as we study Ecclesiastes to want to discount what he says by saying, well, this guy doesn't know the God I know, or he's not following the God I understand, or he doesn't have the kind of understanding I do. I want you to see that what we're hearing in the narrative here, as he lays out his adventure and his understandings is a guy who is not denying the existence of God, not denying the sovereignty of God, not denying the power of God or the knowledge of God. He's saying, God has done these things and I don't like it, right? God has done these things and I don't like it. That is one of his summaries. He says, I've looked at this all and I got to tell you, things are crooked because God made them that way and there's nothing we can do about it. And Now, second summary statement, you see a little bit further in 18. He says it this way, in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He says, after all has been said and done, and I'll detail this for you. He says, after all is said and done, I got to tell you, I grew in knowledge and I learned all these things. And having learned all these things and growing in knowledge, I have to tell you now, I sort of wish I hadn't learned them because the more I observed and the more I experienced and the more I understood, the sadder I got. He says, with more information and more understanding comes an increase in sadness. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. If you've ever felt like, man, I, I wish I could go back to a time where I didn't know all of the things that are happening in my neighborhood or around the world. That it would be better to be in ignorance than to be so well informed and so incapable of doing anything about all the tragedy I see in the world, right? Right? What he's saying is that as your wisdom and understanding grows, so grows your sadness because you learn all of these things, but you're powerless to change them. Now that might seem bleak, right? And it it should seem a little bleak and it might seem discouraging, but I want to say this too as we begin this week. I want to remind you that sitting in the room, there are people in the room who immediately go, yeah, I get it. I feel just like that, right? There are some of you sitting in the room who immediately identify with the heartache that Q is feeling this sense that like God made all this and he didn't do it the way I wish he'd done it, right? God made all this and I don't understand why he's organized it the way he has. I don't understand it. And I don't like it. That may be some of you sitting in the room. There's some of you sitting in the room who wish you didn't know as much about life or about the world, or you hadn't experienced the things you experienced because the more you have learned, the sadder you've gotten. There are some of you who identify with that immediately. Now, there are others of you in the room who maybe aren't in that phase of your life right now, right? Maybe you've had moments like that in the past. Maybe you'll have moments like that again in the future. But what I want you to recognize as we dive in here, and we talked about this last week too, is that its presence in the scripture is a recognition that there are going to be times where people of faith are going to feel the futility and the frustration of the things they see that they can't do anything about, or the things they understand about God or his world that they can't change. One of the most frustrating things about being a creature, you and I are both created beings, is that we don't have all the power to change the things we want to change, and we don't have all the knowledge to even know what needs to be changed. That's what he's feeling, right? And you may not be feeling that profoundly this morning, but I bet you if you looked left and right down the aisle, there's somebody up the row from you who is feeling it profoundly, who resonates with what Kohelet has said here and is is feeling this sense of like, what is the point? It all feels like a chasing after wind. It all feels like hevel, right? Vapor, breath. It all feels meaningless or like absurdity. Life feels bananas, right? Once again, that is the overarching sense of the way he's feeling. Now, he's going to detail some of those pursuits, and that begins in chapter 2. So as we come to chapter 2, look with me, if you will, at the first 11 verses. In these 11 verses, he details for us his pursuit to acquire things that he thought would please him. Uh, If you have the ESV translation in front of you, they sort of call this like indulging in like self-indulgement, right? Trying to sort of satisfy yourself with a variety of different things. Here's the way he says it. Verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. And that word could be translated enjoyment. So don't think of it just as, uh, sometimes in modern translation we we'll think of pleasure just in a sort of a sexual way. This is included in that, but it, it's not only that, right? He says, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is Vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools with which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Uh, let's, I want to just press pause really quick. Uh, anytime we, in our study of the Bible, in, in today's day and age, we come across a passage that talks about slavery, I think it's worth just pausing for a second and, and addressing something. When we look and see in the Bible places that talk about slavery and then don't immediately reprimand that or correct it, there is a certain feeling you should have as an American. Because of the history of America... Uh, When we hear the word slave or we hear someone talk about enslaving other people, I hope that you feel a sense of nausea. Like you feel a sense of revulsion, right? Because of our history in this particular country. And that's appropriate and that should be there. And the Bible would reinforce that position with regard to slavery. But some of these books, like some of these in the Old Testament and Ecclesiastes, which is in front of us right now, was written during a time period in which I I would say they were not as enlightened as we are in 2024 about the enslaving of other human beings, right? And so it gets referenced in a passing way in the midst of a paragraph that's like, hey, I tried wine and I tried laughter and I tried gardens and pools and I had a bunch of slaves and then, you know, and and he just kind of rolls past it. And what you might be hoping for is that there would be like a lightning bolt, right? That God would be like, no, right? And it can be frustrating, at least it is frustrating to me, that sometimes we read past these verses and we don't hear that like, voice from God immediately saying, I don't like that. Now, again, if we take the total of Scripture, we can hear God's voice saying that in Christ there is no longer male, female, slave, free, Greek, Scythian, like all of those old distinctions are eradicated. And we can certainly find in the Bible places where God speaks against the enslavement of other people. But understand that Ecclesiastes was written during a time period in which that was normative and and that that isn't the point of what he's saying here. If anything, part of what he's saying is I had people serving me, I had people that I owned and even that didn't satisfy me. The reason I want to press pause on it and I want to stop and talk about it is that I wouldn't want anybody in the room to feel like its presence in this paragraph is an endorsement by God of that horrific practice. Does that make sense? So having said that, Let's keep going, right? He says, I tried all these things. I built gardens. I owned these people. Slaves were born in my possession. Verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. What we're seeing here is that he denied himself nothing. In fact, he'll see that in the verses that come. Verse 9. I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem... Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, right? I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was my reward for all my toil, right? He says, I tried it all. Anything that I was hungry for, anything that I wanted to chase, I chased it and I accumulated it, whether that was power or whether that was money, whether that was beauty, whether that was accomplishment. He says, I built these homes and I had all these people and I tried sexual pleasure and I tried wine and I tried all these things and I didn't deny myself anything. And at the end of it, I would chase these things and I would catch them. And I had them and they didn't satisfy me. The end conclusion of this opening section, he says, After I tried all of these things, I considered all that my hands had done, verse 11, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says, I was never satisfied. The itch I had was never scratched. I I wanted these things to do something for me. And yet when I got them, I still felt as empty as I felt before that. I I would guess that you guys in the room have experienced that as well, right? That you think, oh man, if I could just go on the bed, if I could just stay in the nicer hotel, then it'll be the best vacation ever. And then you spend the money and you go stay in the nicer hotel and you're like, "Uh, it it was all right, but there is a nicer hotel on that same beach, right? You buy a new iPhone, right? You buy a new iPhone and what happens the week after? They do this on purpose. The week after you buy your iPhone, they put out the new iPhone and it's it's only got like three new things but those three new things are so much cooler than the things that your iPhone does, right? the cycle repeats. We go, I got to get the best thing. I got to get the next thing. I got to taste something just a little bit better. I got to chase some other experience. I got to enjoy some other pleasure. Why? Because there's this thing in us that thinks that these simple things can do something grand for us. One of the things I think we'll see is in our study of Ecclesiastes broadly is that we, we as humans expect to get more out of simple things than simple things can provide, right? If you're taking notes today, you might write that down. I'd love for you to think about it this week. We, as people, expect that a better steak or a better hotel or another lover or whatever, that these things will somehow satisfy us. And if we could just get that next thing, we'd be satisfied. But if you've fallen down that road, you know that as soon as you get it, it isn't enough. That's what he's saying. And because of the way in which this character is, is written and articulated, this Kohelet is meant to be uh, the sort of the super character of any category. So he's richer than you, and he's more powerful than you, and he's got more experiences than you. And he's, you know, in every category, he is you to the nth degree. That's why he's a king and all these other things, right? And so what it's meant to do in some ways is to say to you, you don't need to chase all these things because I did it, and it never satisfied me. It was all hevel. It was all chasing after vapor and breath. It won't satisfy you, right? He says, I perceived after doing all of it that it was a a waste of my time. It was all vanity and a striving after wind. We chase these things with ultimately no gain. I talked last week about the fact that gain or profit is a a major theme for the writer here. One of the things he's showing us is that we're always looking to see what the advantage is. And in things like this, we ultimately just find emptiness and no gain. Now, the second category he gives us, let's keep reading. Look at verse 12. He at first talks about self-indulgence, and then here in twelve, now he talks about uh, he talks about wisdom and folly, or wisdom and foolishness. He says, "So after I tried all those things, I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there's more gain in light than in darkness." The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, right? So here's what he said. He says, I I decided to live a wise life for a while, and then I decided to live a life where you throw wisdom to the wind, and you just live the life of the fool, like a life of folly. And he says, I will tell you that what I found in that endeavor is that, you might not be surprised, living a life of wisdom is slightly better than living the life of a fool, right? There is some small advantage or some profit In living the wise life, it is preferable to the life of the fool. Like light is better than darkness, right? He says it's better to not be wandering and stumbling in the darkness. But then he uses the word that we translate yet, right? He says, I saw that this one's better. He says, the wise person, verse 15, um, well, actually in 14, he says, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. The same thing happens to the wise and the foolish. You know what he's talking about? Another major theme of this book, the grave, right? We got wise people over here and foolish people over here. I don't mean in the room, although we probably have a little bit of both. And, uh, but we got, you got wise people and foolish people, he says, and they both die. Here's the way he writes it. He says, verse 15, "'Then I said in my heart, "'What happens to the fool will happen to me also. "'Why then have I been so very wise?' He goes, all this wisdom I've gained and all this experience and all this money and all this power, and yet the end of the day is I could trip and fall off a cliff, right? And the foolish person who doesn't have any of the things I know and doesn't have any of the things I've experienced, hasn't been any of the places I've been, he might live a hundred years. I don't know if you ever have that feeling where like they'll say, you know, this person is 105 and they just passed away and they smoked cigarettes and ate bacon their whole life. And you're eating your broccoli and you're thinking like, this isn't fair, you know? Like, why does that work? Like, why am I eating tofu? Because sometimes the people who eat tofu still trip and fall into the Grand Canyon. And the bacon eater lives forever, you know? He says, I grew in wisdom, and I realized that wisdom's a little bit better, but I got to tell you, it it doesn't really matter in the end. uh, You know, when you add it all up, the reality is the fool dies, the wise person dies, and there isn't any logic to it, Right? The fool may die later than the wise. The wise person for all his wisdom can't even prolong his days, right? He can't add any time to his life. So what's the point of being wise? He says, why did I even bother with wisdom? I'm still just going to die like the fool. I haven't added anything to my life. He says, verse 16, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. He says, I I, I tried wisdom, I tried pleasure, I tried self-indulgence, I tried wisdom and folly, and ultimately, it all just is dust. It all is just vanity again. The last characteristic that he talks about in this chapter starts in verse 18. He talks about the, the hevel or the worthlessness, meaninglessness, absurdity of all of his work. He says in verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is hevel or vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart from which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. He says, this is driving me crazy. He says, you work your whole life. You strive and you toil and you sweat and you go and you accumulate all these things. Sometimes you can't even sleep. You're up all night thinking about your job and you can't rest because you're striving and striving. You're chasing these accomplishments and then you die. And the reality is you don't have any control over who gets that. You you might, but the reality is what he says in the text literally is my descendants might be idiots, right? My kids might be stupid and I did all this work and I had all these sleepless nights and all this striving and all this sorrow and then I'm going to hand it off to these knuckleheads who are going to burn it, right? They're not going to know what to do with it. And to be honest with you, they didn't work for it. They don't deserve it. There is something interesting that's contained in this particular section that speaks to uh, sometimes the misunderstanding that we have. Sometimes we, we forget that there are people in this world who are wealthy, not because they are good or because they deserved it. They're wealthy because their parents worked hard, right? Or because their grandparents worked hard. And by the same token, there are people who are impoverished in our world who aren't impoverished because they're criminals or because they're stupid or because they're foolish, but they're, they're impoverished because their parents and their grandparents and their great grandparents were impoverished, right? He's saying that doesn't feel fair, It feels like the wise people and the hardworking people and those who are headed in the right direction, they should be the ones to be able to hold on to the profits of their work. And yet the reality is death's gonna come and my kids might be stupid, right? So what do I do? It doesn't feel fair. He says all of it is hevel. All the way through, right? The rich aren't necessarily rich because they're worthy and the poor aren't necessarily poor because they're lazy and stupid. He says this doesn't make sense. It's a, a crookedness that can't be made straight. Work will swallow your life, and for what? Now, it's interesting when we get to 24, he's, he's laid out these things. He's laid out self-indulgence and wisdom and folly, and he's laid out toil, and he's found all of them to be empty in the last sort of assessment. And then he gives us uh, one of the first what uh, commentators or outside people will say is a, like a carpe diem statement, like a seize the day statement. But I want us to look at it carefully in the context in which it's given. Here's what he says. This is in 24. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, now on the surface level, there is a sense in which it does feel like, hey, look at this. He's lightening up a little bit, right? He's saying something nice. He says, hey, you know what? Uh, there's nothing better than to enjoy a great meal or a glass of wine or find, find joy in your work. Like, There's nothing better than that. I want to be really careful uh, about the way you read this because, again, if we take it in the context of the whole thing, in a minute he's going to say this too is meaningless. This too is evil. So what we don't want to perceive here is that his mood is lightened or all of a sudden he's kind of looked up and thought, you know what, though? It is nice to have a good hamburger, right? What he's saying is, in the grand scheme of things... There's nothing better than just to find simple pleasures that God gives you along the way. When he says there's nothing better, he doesn't mean it like, oh, you guys, there is nothing better than an In-N-Out cheeseburger, right? What he's saying is, eh, I've tried a bunch of cheeseburgers, and I guess mm, there's nothing better than the In-N-Out one. And then that's meant to sound disappointing, not affirming, right? In the context of what he's saying, he's saying, you know what? What? There isn't anything better. I mean, it's something to enjoy a meal or to enjoy your drink or to enjoy your work. But it's not much because you're still going to die and the idiot might fall into the Grand Canyon after you, right? He's saying... That there are these little pleasures. Now, this is, this is actually within this. What I want to do is, I don't, I don't want you to feel like he's lightening his mood because he doesn't lighten his mood here. But I do want you to understand what he is saying. What he is saying is that from the hand of God, there are little joys in the midst of the overarching absurdity of it. Does that make sense? In the midst of the overarching hevel, the overarching like insanity of it, there are these places where because God is good, he does gift us with simple pleasures, right? Uh, yesterday, my wife, uh, not my wife, but my, my daughter had her final performance at Fullerton High School, right? With the musical theater department. And my sons came in from out of town. And so the whole family was under the one roof. We went last night to Fullerton High School. We listened to my daughter perform in this deal. and And I will tell you that like, there's a moment of pride and joy and just like I've got tears. I'm, I'm so proud of her, right? And I love sitting with my family. Is that, a, is that a bad moment? No, it's a lovely, beautiful moment. Does it change the war in Ukraine? Does it change all of the racism in the world? Does it change the questions I have about my own life or the difficulties of being a pastor in 2023? No, it doesn't fix any of the big problems in my life. But was it sweet last night with my kids in that row? You bet it was. And that's a gift from God. So don't miss what he's saying. While there may not be immediate answers, at least in his view, there aren't immediate answers to some of the overarching futilities of life. God is giving you along the way a great cheeseburger and a moment with your daughter and a moment with, you know, like a moment on a, on a motorcycle ride or whatever. Don't miss them. Don't miss those places where God gives you these little joys. They are from him. And they don't answer all the questions, and they don't take all of the pain away, and they don't take all of the hurt away, and they, and they don't solve it, but they are a gift from God in the midst. Does that make sense? He says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I also saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have any enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. I think there is, uh, maybe for some of you, there is this desire in a text like this to just like want to get out from underneath it. It feels discouraging, right? Um, But before you let the air out of this, I just want to point you to Jesus. Every week when we're studying this text, we're always going to need to look at Jesus. Because one of the things we said last week is that Jesus answers a lot of the questions that Q has that he didn't have the answers to, but that we do. So for our purpose and our studying as followers of Jesus, it's important for us to look at the ways Jesus answers these questions. But before we even look at the way Jesus answers the questions in chapter 2, I actually want to remind you that the futility and the suffering and the injustice and the pain, Jesus experienced all of those, right? Let's not forget that in the incarnation, in Jesus coming to the earth and living a human life that he was perfect. He never failed to glorify God. He never failed to be compassionate or loving or kind. He lived a perfect life. And yet, his experience at the hands of other people was to be misunderstood, to be punished unjustly, to be falsely accused, to be lied about. All of these things that you sometimes feel, Jesus felt those as well. The sorrow and the grief and some of the futility of this life and all of the brokenness in it, Jesus came and experienced. It says in Isaiah 53, Verses three and following, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Jesus knows the pain of living a human life. He did that, right? And he experienced it. Don't miss that because he calls us to follow him. It's worth remembering this morning, church, that God doesn't say, hey, I want you to follow my wise way of living, or I want you to follow my happy way of living, or I want you to follow my way of living that's full of laughter and sunshine. What he says is, if you're my follower, take up your cross. Embrace my suffering is what he says. Matthew 10, Jesus is very clear. He says, don't be surprised if you're following me if all men hate you because of me and they lie about you and they drag you in front of their magistrates and they flog you publicly. If your parents abandon you and your kids curse you, don't be surprised because they did all that stuff to me. That's been my experience too. If you and I look around the world with cohelet, and we feel the fact that it feels crooked by God's design and we can't fix it, I want you to understand that Jesus came and he, and he experientially understood the injustice of it, right? He, he experienced it. He lived a good life. And the reward of that life was to be killed, right? Now that was his intention. But I, I want you to feel the solidarity of Christ in the difficulty of this life because he, he experienced that. And he calls us to take up our cross he calls us to die to ourselves. In this world, there is much that won't make sense. But some of what doesn't make sense to us happens in the following of Jesus and the pain that is involved. We, we sort of think like, oh, if you follow Jesus, there's going to be doves landing on your shoulder and sunshine and rainbows and people feeding you grapes or whatever. And that just isn't the life he described. The life he described is that if you follow him, your life will be like his. And his life was not always fair, right? Not always easy but there 's something else we, we, we pick up here as well um, in this last section, back to Ecclesiastes two. The very end you may be, you may be tempted to get excited in twenty six He says to the one who pleases him. God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. You, you might look at that and go, yeah, okay, finally, a little bit of justice, a little bit of settling the score. It says there that those who please God and live a good life, he's going to give them all the stuff they need. And those who don't please God, the sinner, well, he's going to take what they have and he's going to give it to the good guys. So here's what we learn at the end of e- Ecclesiastes 2. The good guys get good stuff and the bad guys get bad stuff, right? And that might make you feel awesome. Sorry, that's not what Kohelet's saying. When Kohelet says, to the one who pleases God, good things are given, and to the one, it, it's translated here, sinner, but the word could be translated to the one in whom God finds offense. He takes what he has and gives it to the one who pleases him. What, what Kohelet's saying is not the good guys get good stuff and the bad guys get bad stuff. What he's saying is God does what he wants and it's not going to make sense to you. There are going to be people that you look at and you think, that person's good and they should get all kinds of good things. And they're not going to have that life. And there are people you look at and think, that person's bad and they should get bad things. And yet God knows things you don't know. And his judgment is wiser than yours and broader than yours. And I think sometimes about the way uh, an ant knows human beings. And that is to say an ant knows human beings not at all. Because the chasm between us is so great. And even if we endeavor to try and explain some things to an ant about ourselves, I mean, the most he's going to figure out is we don't want him on the counter or we are spraying with poison, you know? I'm not saying that God thinks of us as ants, but I do want you to think about the gap in understanding between an insect and a human being. And then I want you to recognize that the gap between God and us, although we are created in his image, is greater still than the gap between us and bugs. And for any of us who perceive that we've got him figured out or that we understand what he does or what he should do or where he should go or how he should work, we're fooling ourselves. He has revealed himself to us in Christ and in the scriptures. But our understanding of God is limited because we are finite people with limited power and limited knowledge, right? So what Kohelet is saying here in this end of chapter 2 is he's saying, look at the end of the day. God gives things to those he pleases and he takes away from those with whom he finds offense. But look at the last sentence of chapter 2. This also is vanity. He's not saying, finally, I see justice. What he's saying is, I see what God is doing and I don't like it. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't add up. That might be frustrating to you or you might feel it, right? There might be some of you in the room who go, yep, I get that sentiment exactly. And there are others of you who are saying, no, no, no. He's saying something nice and Christian here. But he wasn't saying something nice and Christian. He was saying, I don't get this. I don't get it. Now, let's finish our message this morning by learning what we know based on who Jesus is that Kohelet did not have. And that is that we actually read, as followers of Jesus, we read verse 26 very differently than the original author would have written it, right? We read it very different. Why? Because what we understand in in knowing who Jesus is and why he came, that everything Kohelet says about chasing, right? He says, I'm chasing after pleasure. I'm chasing after power. I'm building gardens and pools and fountains. I've got all these people serving me. I'm sleeping around. I'm doing all this stuff. And none of it's, I chase it and I just can't get it, right? Well, the, the Bible tells us That that is the curse of human beings. That we're chasing after things we can't get. That we cannot save ourselves. That we can't make ourselves holy. That we can't repair what is broken in us. And no matter how much we chase it, it's futility for us to chase it. And that is why Jesus comes in the incarnation to glorify his father by rescuing us. Recognizing that we can't get what we're chasing We are never going to catch up to it and be satisfied. And what God does is he says, cease from your striving and let me give you what you need. You don't have to chase it. You don't have to go after it. You don't have to pursue it. I'm going to give it to you by my grace. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 4 says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's not a thing you chased after and captured. You can't chase it right? This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What we learn in the new Testament in the coming and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is that all of our chasing after things is empty. Well, kohelet already knew that, right? We know it experientially, but what the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Jesus says to us is you are incapable of catching what you think you need. You can't chase it and get it. So instead, stop chasing and hold out your hands and let me give you resurrection life. That's what Jesus does. We are seated with him. So let's read 26 again, and let me just remind you of a couple of things. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 26. I'll remind you of a couple of things because of the way Jesus answers Kohelet's question. In 26, it says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. For the record, who pleases God? nobody in here, right? Who pleases God? Jesus. In fact, the only reason we have a relationship with God is because of Christ. So if you're trying to figure out which one of us pleases God and which one doesn't, the answer is none of us please God. The only way that we become pleasing to God is when we have the aroma of Christ on us, his blood shed on our behalf. So it says, For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. If you read that verse initially and you go, oh good, I'm glad I'm one of the good guys because I'm going to get all the bad guys stuff when God takes it away from them. Let me remind you, that's the wrong way to read that because you and me are the bad guys. (laughs) Who are the sinners? Who are the sinners in this world? Who are the sinners? This guy... And yeah, thanks for raising your all, Yeah, us. We're them. So wh- who is going to have all their stuff taken away? Us. Here's, here's the way I read this. And it's not the way Kohelet read it, but let me just remind you of the way Jesus answers this question. All of my striving and all of my work and all of the things I try and do to save myself, God takes all of that striving. All of my striving, He takes from me and He gives it to the one who pleases Him. You know what God does? He takes all of my sin. And all of my self-confidence and all of my pride and all of my chasing after things, all the things I think that are so great about me, he takes all of those things because they're all broken and busted. They're all separating me from him. And he, what does he do? He gives those to the one who pleases him. He gives those to the Lord Jesus who takes them on himself, all my sin and yours too. And he dies in my place. He rises from the dead. And then he says, stop chasing after that stuff. You can't catch it. Hold out your hands and let me give you what you need. Let me give you what you need. When I read 26, what I hear is unintentionally. So I don't don't want to say this is a foreshadowing because I don't think that's what's happening here. But when I read it, I hear the story of the gospel. That God takes the, the stuff that a sinner has done and it's worthless and he places it on Jesus and Jesus pays for it. And he does the same for you as well. For those of us who are followers of Christ, we remember that, pleasure and wisdom and work are empty pursuits. When we stop pursuing empty things, God gives us what we actually need. And a Christian is one who says, I can't catch what I'm chasing. I'll stop and simply receive the gift of God. At the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I want to read this to you every time because remember at the very end of the book, the author comes back and here's what he says at the very end. After hearing everything that Kohelet will say, He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Kohelet will say, the stuff that is crooked, God made that way and we can't fix it. He'll say, the more I know, the sadder I feel. And the author of the book doesn't say, oh no, don't feel sad. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard. Fear God, obey him and trust that he knows what he's doing, right? That's the end for us. Yes, it can be hard, depending on the season of life you're in, but Jesus has answered these questions, and in him, we find the hope that Kohelet never had. Would you pray with me? God, the the, uh, supernatural power of your Holy Spirit is needed always, but I think... uh, I feel particularly in a text like this one, the danger inherent in people walking out feeling hopeless or feeling discouraged or feeling uh, the hevel or the meaninglessness, the absurdity of life and and not looking to you and so I pray that you would draw our eyes to you, that you would lift our eyes from the pain and the and the toil and the sometimes the futility of this life, that you would lift our eyes to the ways in which you, lord Jesus answer these accusations, these realities, that you make all things new, that you you give us what we can't catch on our own. I pray that each and every individual in this room would both be sobered by the realistic perspective of this book of Ecclesiastes, but would also be uh, filled with hope and joy at the way in which you change everything, Lord Jesus. And we pray that in your name and for your glory. Amen.